again, everybody, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the show. My name is Jeff Kwame. I'm your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. This podcast comes to you thanks to the generosity of our friends at Mountainside Treatment Center in Canaan, Connecticut, where they provide individualized clinical, medical, and wellness services to those struggling with substance use and mental health disorders. Mountainside is proud to be the only rehabilitation center in the state to be accredited by both CARF International and the Joint Commission, and is currently recruiting passionate and talented individuals for its Connecticut and New York locations. Every employee, regardless of position, plays a role in improving the lives of clients and their families. If you're interested in joining the Mountainside team, please visit mountainside.com forward slash careers. On behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. The numbers from the Centers for Disease Control regarding the year 2020 are absolutely horrifying. Overdose deaths increased almost 30% from the previous year, adding up to a total of 93,000 victims of overdose for the year. This comes out to 254 of our family members, our friends, and our colleagues every single day. This is America, and in America, we like to simplify problems in order to provide simple solutions. Currently, we're blaming the pharmaceutical companies and placing enormous fines on the Sacklers as if they created the problem on their own. We blame the medical community, and then we shut down pill mills where they thrive, saying that we solved the problem in that respect. And uh, most recently, we focus on harm reduction efforts to focus on the most basic need, the preservation of human life. These and several other efforts have been incredibly helpful, but as our guest today says, they haven't turned the tide. Einstein once said that you cannot solve a problem from the same consciousness that created it. You have to see the world anew. Our guest today promotes looking at this problem in a different way. In a July article in Newsweek magazine, he asked a simple question. What if we actually prevented people from reaching that most desperate point in their life? It would be a game changer, he posits. Dr. Aaron Weiner is the president-elect of the Society for Addiction Psychology, the vision of the American Psychological Association devoted to the education and training of addiction psychologists. And many of you will recognize the CEO of the APA, Dr. Arthur Evans, from his work here in Connecticut with Dr. Thomas Kirk on recovery-oriented systems of care. Dr. Weiner is a board-certified practicing psychologist, former healthcare system administrator, consultant, public speaker, and community educator specializing in addiction psychology and behavioral health. He has a passion for bridging the gap between science and medical journals in the real world, bridging that science to service gap and making complicated and specialized information about addiction accessible and actionable for groups of any type, including physicians, law enforcement, politicians, parents, and high school students. Dr. Weiner is prepared to speak on a variety of topics, including opioids, vaping, marijuana, stigma, treatment, and general addiction principles. He also has experience in organizational leadership in medical settings. And since I have a master's in organizational leadership, I certainly appreciate that. And evidence-based behavioral health practices and consultation education related to clinical practice and behavioral health care administration. It's my absolute honor to introduce Dr. Weiner to our listeners and have him join this podcast. Good afternoon to you, sir. Good afternoon to you. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, no problem. It's my pleasure. As we mentioned briefly in the bio, the article that was published in Newsweek made a complicated situation understandable to a non-industry audience. Can you tell us what led to writing that article? Absolutely. Well, so as, as you so eloquently put it in the show's intro, 
the, the overdose epidemic has been increasing and COVID hit the, hit the gas on that. We accelerated almost 30% increase in overdose deaths. And even before those numbers came out, those of us who are engaged in addiction treatment and addiction medicine could see it coming uh, from a mile away. And even before COVID hit, we were hit with the 2019 numbers where we saw a 4% increase in overdose deaths that year, despite all the money and time and effort that we've been putting towards it. But as, at least for me, as I was going through my own thought process around this during the pandemic, I just couldn't help but think, maybe we're going about this in a way that is necessary, but not sufficient, where we're doing things that are important, we're doing things that are helpful, but if it was actually working, we'd be seeing these numbers at the very least stop going up, if not decrease. And I, I don't think it's being too optimistic or too naive to say that it's possible to have fewer overdose deaths in the next year than in the previous one. I think it's achievable, but we've got to do it in the right way. And I think that way actually is a little bit different than how we're doing it now. In the article, you mentioned prevention and prevention is not a new thought. It's not a new process. It has a very well-established evidence base and well-documented history in our industry. Um, I've not previously seen it directly mentioned as an effective way to combat the opioid epidemic long-term. Is this something that the industry is just something that we've missed? I think so. I, th I think it's something that we've missed for, for a number of reasons, but the biggest one is that overdoses, like the, the end of the addiction spectrum, when someone might die from the illness, is very flashy. It makes headlines. I mean, death is a, it, it moves people and it attracts focus. And it's important that even people who are in the end stage of a disease, that they get help, right? It's not that you just say, well, it's too late for you because it's not. And we know that it doesn't have to be that way. At the same time, that is the end of a progression that oftentimes takes many years, many, 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 many years. And the, the main point that I'm making in the article is that a lot of our funding and a lot of our attention focuses on the endpoints, either the very beginning of the process of going down the pathway of addiction that can lead to overdose or the very end where we're you know, giving out naloxone to reverse overdoses or fentanyl test strips so that people can know if their product has been contaminated with fentanyl. But between those two endpoints, there are literally years to intervene. And I think that we're not, we're not looking at that. In the article, you talk about two pathways which individuals may develop an opioid use disorder. Um, the first being teenagers or young adults beginning with other substances to either fit in or to deal with symptoms of other mental health conditions and peer pressure and the like. Um, the second being the group of people introduced to opioids through surgeries and other invasive medical procedures, both with what we recognize as a common progression to more dangerous routes of use and, and use patterns. Why is it so important to look at these groups differently? So I think it's important to look at them differently because they, they perceive themselves very differently and the context in which the addiction advances feels very different. If you are taking the, the first route, the one where you're progressing from one substance to another, eventually making it to heroin, because nobody starts with heroin, no one starts with fentanyl. That's again, usually the end of a progression that these days tends to be starting with vaping some substance like nicotine or THC with young people, eventually progressing to that point. That path and what leads people along that path and the ways to, pre to prevent that advancement is very different from someone who 
say is having low back pain in you know age 48 and is prescribed medication or is looking for alternative solutions and or gets into a car crash or falls off of a ladder and they're prescribed pills and it's almost a, an iatrogenic problem at that point where mm-hmm. it's ushered along by physicians and medical instructions as opposed to uh, thrill-seeking behavior or social acceptance or numbing or whatever that you're, you're doing in that, that first route. So I think you know, there are these two ways that people make it to that same end, but the way that you would, you, you would, you would intervene in the middle looks different depending on which path someone's on. As we look at those two pathways, what do we as an industry need, uh, need to do better in order to move forward with the best prevention pathway for, uh, for let's say, the first group? Yeah, so, so, so the technical term for what I'm advocating for is secondary prevention. And for, for listeners who aren't as uh, in, in, inside the prevention field, primary prevention is when you stop someone from doing something in the first place. It's, if, if, if they never start, uh, then that's primary prevention. Secondary prevention is when someone already has a problem, but you're going to stop it from exacerbating. You're gonna stop it from getting worse. Tertiary prevention is the third type, and that's stopping someone from relapsing, essentially, or after the problem has been resolved once, not letting it come back again. And so what we focus on a lot for that first group, who are, again, primarily young people who are getting started on an addiction pathway, 90% of people who have a problem with addiction will start some addiction in their teenage years. That's also why when you look at marketing for our legal industries, they've always tended to target the young or who the young people look up to directly because that that creates that next generation of customers and hooks people for a long time. Um, When we think about them, we usually take the standpoint of, well, let's just stop them uh, entirely. And that's very important work. As I said, we shouldn't be not doing that. Um, there's, there's a lot of drug-free uh, communities, drug-free coalition groups that are doing that work all across America. They do a fantastic job with it. Um, and at the same time, what we're, what we're not doing then is if someone say, say you do have a young person who is part of a peer group that's vaping nicotine or that's vaping marijuana or is, is smoking marijuana of some sort, are we crafting messaging for them that talks about why if they're at a party or they're hanging out with people and someone shows up with some Xanax or someone shows up with some opioids, or if they see a line of cocaine or a hallucinogen or whatever it is, why there's still benefit to not necessarily going to that next stage. And, and that's, that's the part where I think we, we, we completely take, take our hands off the wheel when it comes to helping guide people who have taken that first step down the road, but haven't made it to step two, three, four, and five yet, you know, they can end in overdose. That's where we can target interventions to say, so, so you've done this. We're not going to, you know, come down on you for that or make you, you know, we're, we're not, we're not gonna, we're gonna relate to you in a way that feels that, that, that you can actually relate to and try to divert you from a course that can lead you someplace worse. It, it sounds like a very parallel process to what occurs in effective treatment and recovery patterns where you're meeting that individual where they're at, you're tailoring the message exactly for where that person is and getting rid of what we like to do as Americans, all or nothing, and saying, here's where we're at, here's where you're at, let's see how we can interrupt. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. or, or keep, you know, at least keep you at this point for now while we stop it from exacerbating. It's very similar um, in, in a process-wise with treatment and recovery. So let me ask you the same question for that second group. And I, I know and have treated a lot of individuals um, in both groups, but there was something unique I saw in that second group um, 
like you said, more of an iatrogenic issue. Yeah, so so we actually have even more, uh, we have more data on them because they're inside the healthcare system. When someone's getting these opioids after some sort of like joint replacement or spine procedure or um, having some sort of accident, we have prescription monitoring programs, I think at this point in all 50 states, where we actually are tracking exactly how many meds people are on. And this is an issue where uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, that confidentiality is why we should not be leveraging that data to help prevent these negative health outcomes. And I understand that argument. And at the same time, when, when I was part of Edward Elmhurst Health, which was where I was a hospital administrator prior to starting my own business, while we were working on the opioid epidemic, at one point we pulled a week's worth of data from the primary care clinics. We, we could see exactly who was being prescribed what by whom, how much, and when those prescriptions looked like they could be pretty risky. And that when you have that data, and we have that data at the healthcare system level and at the state level, it's very easy to see who's at risk for progression, who's at risk for overdose, and then reach out to them for intervention. And in, in addition to reaching out to them, would you see reaching out to the physicians and providing some information um, about what's happening as well? Oh, absolutely. System-wide? About what's going on. I mean, you, you could literally say, for example, with that data, you could find the top a decile of providers like the, you know, the, who are providing the most, most opioids and reach out to them and say, hey, did you know you're prescribing more opioids than nine out of 10 physicians in your specialty? <laughs> you are. Um, let's talk about that, right? And, and try to provide some feedback. Um, at the same time, part of that education, I think, is also, so then what do you do with these patients? Because another syndrome that we see sometimes are these really incredibly aggressive tapers, or sometimes uh, even just dropping people off if they're struggling with some sort of addictive process, which is going to lead them to the streets because you know you cut someone off from opioids, that's leaving them in an extraordinary vulnerable and uncomfortable and untenable position. And people are going to try to reduce that discomfort and that leads them to, to even worse outcomes. So we, we've got to know how to handle both the pain control better as well as the, uh, the addiction related interventions more effectively. Yeah, with those types of cutoffs, what you see ultimately is people can't can't afford to buy prescriptions or to buy the tablets anymore, and it's more cost effective for them to go to the street and buy heroin, which also ups the risk significantly um, when they're just trying to be more comfortable for the most part. Um, and I, I, one of the struggles I see in the industry, and, and I mentioned this just a second ago, is this black or white, all or nothing thinking. And so I have to say this just for my own sake is. Just to be clear, you're not discounting different treatment and harm reduction efforts. You're just adding the targeted prevention interventions into the equation, correct? Oh, absolutely. And that goes back to this idea of what we're doing right now is necessary, but not sufficient. And I think the proof for that is in the pudding. Um, I, I don't think that that taking any of that back will be helpful. If anything, the massive uh, uptick we saw in deaths is due to the huge disruption that COVID caused and our ability to do these sorts of harm reduction efforts to, to provide treatment. Um, at the same time, even with all of them in place, we weren't actually solving this problem. And so that's where I think we've got, this is not an either or, this is an and sort of situation. And as a field, we tend to silo ourselves. I'm in the prevention field. I'm in the treatment field. I'm in the recovery field. And what we're saying is, let's all get together, have a conversation on the bigger picture, and let's really effectively work to solve this. this what's going on. Um, another peculiarity of the industry I've seen in my 30 plus years 
it, it, I struggle to say that, I'm sorry, 30 plus years, is a focus on immediate impact versus long-term change. The prevention effort that you described would certainly need to be measured longitudinally for maximum benefit. What can you say to those who say, well, why are we doing this? Because I don't see the benefit today. So this is the trickiest part about prevention. There's like two aspects that make this so challenging. One is that you can't really measure when something doesn't happen so well, right? It's like it, it, something didn't happen well, and this is the reason why. My, my, my mind goes to like, that's what correlations and, and spurious correlations are all about. When I was uh, an undergrad in college, I got it in my mind that a Cubs hat that I just bought was a lucky Cubs hat because I, every time I wore it when I was watching a game, even on the TV, the Cubs won. And they actually won like 14 times in a row when I was wearing that hat. Um, but then they lost eight <laughs> because there's no such thing as a lucky hat. Um, and I mean, it, This is my lucky Patriots mug. <laughs> <laughs> I drink coffee out of this during every Patriots game. <laughs> you know what? We all have our comforts. <laughs> Yeah. It doesn't have any effect, but it, it makes me feel better. That That's an effect, too. That is yeah. an effect, too. Um, but it, it's it's very easy sometimes to, to, to either fall into that trap or then argue the other side of that, being like, how do you know what you're doing is actually preventing the problem? It could have been any number of things. And I think that that part is always hard in terms of the measurement of prevention. Even if, if you look at it from a common sense point of view, it's pretty clear that it's helping. But the other part, and I think that ultimately this is the more important factor, is that this is the sort of thing, like you were saying, that's very longitudinal in nature and where you have to have an investment in planting seeds before those seeds can grow. But the way we plant seeds in today's day and age is with oftentimes investment coming from political sources that are coming from the government. And the problem is that election cycles come through much more quickly than these initiatives do. So you basically have to sell to the people who are making the decisions about what they're funding. Hey, I want you to put millions and millions of dollars into a project that probably won't get you reelected in any way, shape or form, where the results are going to come five, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years down the line. Because again, getting back to where we are now, Right now, we're reaping what we've sown. All these people who are dying, they've been in this pipeline for years. They've been progressing along to this point where we haven't intervened. If we want to, to, to cut off the pipeline, if we want to divert the flow of this river, we, we can. I really believe that we can, but we won't see the results of that for years. And we still have a responsibility to care for people who are on the current pipeline in their current direction. But the political side of this is really tricky, too. And it is a difficult one uh, to measure because they want results uh, much more quickly than, than really can happen. But what I notice about the prevention uh, side of things is their data is plentiful. There's incremental data on, on what's happening so far, what are trends, that there is no lack of data. I think we just need to be more public, more get it out there so that people see um, what's happening because outside of the organization, uh, outside of the industry, they don't see that. And I think one of the important things about your article was it addressed things to an audience that's not inside the the industry. It's a general audience and gives a different view. And I think that that's important that, that to get community buy-in because they're voters as well. And they vote on things that matter in their community. And just to give a success story on this, I mean, look at what happened with cigarettes, right? There was a time when cigarettes were running rampant and the industry was running you know, roughshod all through the country. 
And so many people were smoking and it's still a huge issue. It still kills literally 350,000 people a year. Uh, nicotine and tobacco does in the United States to this day. However, the smoking rate has gone down and down and down and down every year for decades. It started making that downward turn. I believe in the late 90s was when it really picked up steam and started going down. That wasn't by accident. And that wasn't just because of the Surgeon General's warning about cancer, which came out in the 80s. It was because people were doing the work about prevention. People were doing the work around cultural change around these issues. And eventually, it worked. And so I, I know the same can be true for opioids, but we do have to broaden the scope and look further upstream. And the tobacco companies were brilliant at getting their message out because they ultimately switched to the uh, THC products where with gummies and, and all sorts of stuff named after you know, catchy names that kids will remember, and they're doing it. The alcohol industry is doing it with the seltzers and all of these other things. It, it's I don't want to give give them a pat on the back, but what their their way they're doing it is brilliant. We have to be just as brilliant to combat it and understand that we're not going to change it overnight. Incremental change take is important, and great change takes time. Well, absolutely. And, and you make an important part there as well about the industry influences in this. And you mentioned uh, Purdue Pharma, the Sackler family, and the, you know, there, there's a lot that, that that happened on that side. But when money is involved, right, you, you, you can throw millions or even billions of dollars at influencing society if you're going to make that up on the back end. And the struggle for public health has always been that we, we don't have that windfall waiting for us on the other side of a legislative win. You know, we we're just we're just here using our voices because that's what we have. We don't have those millions of dollars. And so it really does take a lot of voices. It takes a groundswell of movement in a certain direction to combat that. A really quick anecdote. There is a there's an advertising campaign going on right now for one of the marijuana companies in Illinois, where literally they have a tin of their cannabis on top of the word every day, nine times. I actually recently published a, a letter to the editor in the Chicago Tribune about this, but it literally says every day, nine times with marijuana right on top of it. And just the, the fact that we're even allowing for something like that, the fact when you know we, we've, we've tamped down on alcohol and, and nicotine advertising in those sorts of ways, is just mind boggling. But these are the sorts of things that when someone's putting millions of dollars behind an advertising campaign saying that cannabis should be used every single day and is good for you. Like this is exactly what happened with opioids and in public health, what you and I are working on. Like these, these are the sorts of forces that we have to push back against all the time. You know, ultimately we, we, you know, my goal with the many other people as we talked was we want to work so that we don't have to work, right? That that if we work well enough that the, the need for us is not going to be there. Well, it's not going to happen in my lifetime, but I also understand the importance for um, my generation of, of people in this field to plant seeds for trees that we may not be able to sit in the shade of. Right. Um. You make the comparison on how we deal with reducing breast cancer deaths from an all-hands-on-deck approach with awareness, early detection practices, treatment across the scope, you know, really as a model of, of the way we should treat OUDs and, and the issues uh, relating to how that's taking lives of, of our friends and family. You know, we want to bring the power of prevention, treatment, and recovery in concert to improve outcomes. How important is it... Uh, for us to have these three aspects of disease management really supporting each other when it comes to uh, dealing with OUDs and overdose deaths 
Yeah. So rarely is a problem have have a this multifaceted have a simple unilateral solution. And you know this is no different. There's a, there's a justice angle to the opioid epidemic as well. There's these two paths that I described in the article for people to get to the endpoint. There's issues on the treatment side as well with things like uh, medication-assisted therapy deserts, buprenorphine deserts. I mean, there's so many different areas, but it is important. I, I think that the, the the reference you were making to the article is that I was saying that we weren't just trying to get at stage four breast cancer. We're talking about saying, well, how do we get the whole scope? How do we do preventative care? How do we raise awareness? We're talking about genetic testing with the BRCA gene. I mean, we there's there's so many different facets of breast cancer now that we're talking about to help reduce how many people ultimately die from it. And I think that that component where we are involving all the different stakeholders, whether or not it has to do with schools or the justice system or healthcare. I mean, there's, there's again, so many angles where we have to communicate. Some of the most effective work groups I've been on have done exactly that at the county level, at the state level, where they pull in all of these different perspectives because those perspectives in terms of crafting a response, allocating funds are required because we, we don't all we don't, we, we can't No, not one of us can see the whole part of the elephant, you know, to use the, the blind mouse metaphor. And I agree with what you just said, because I sit on the mayor's commission for uh, opioids here in Bristol, Connecticut, the home of ESPN. And one of the important things about that is we have the chief of police sits on that, the director of public health. We've got individuals from the recovery organizations. Um, we've got parents in the community. We get other interested community members. So you've got everybody from a different perspective with the same goal, able to kind of bridge those differences. I think as a field, as an industry, we we recognize that OUDs and substance use issues have to be brought better into the public health arena where we're attacking it from all different ways. Um, we have to stop with that. We're different and we're special, which permeated the field years ago and is changing. Um, but I still think we have to do a better job of that. Um, and we're seeing that. We, you know, When I first came into the field, if you worked with individuals with alcohol use disorders, you didn't work with individuals who use other substances. And God forbid you put mental health in there. Now we're seeing things like um, with Espert and with uh, mental health agencies doing appropriate screenings for substance use disorders and substance use disorder agencies, uh, you know, teaching suicide prevention and, you know, it's, you know, QPR, et cetera. We're really starting to see a change and, and uh, we need to see more of that, I would think. Yeah, I mean they're they're all they're they're all linked, and I think that's part of you know it works at the micro level with the individual where you almost never see someone who's just coming in with an alcohol use disorder or an opioid use disorder and has no behavioral health concerns. You know, some it's there's addiction is at its core a, a disease of coping where someone's trying to deal with something else, and usually that is depression or anxiety, trauma, adverse childhood events. You know, if you want to go the Gabor Mate route, I mean, there, there's so many different things, but it, it, it the Venn diagram intersects and that's where and that's where addiction sits. And yeah, the data may say one thing about co-occurring to true co-occurring disorders. That doesn't mean anybody who enters the system is not going to have symptoms and issues related to a specific disorder. And let's forget whether what's diagnosable and what's not. And let's work with what we see and what the individuals want from us. Right. Um, right. 
one of my personal frustrations with awareness campaigns um, that are, are best targeted to the public are also used within the industry to inform professionals. So we'll, we'll be seeing things at a level that are best for the public being shared in the industry. And we're not expecting enough of the industry. We're not getting important uh, information out there. Um, am I being unrealistic in assuming that the messaging in our field amongst each other should go beyond simple awareness? I think so. I, I think that there's, there's, there's always been a tendency where we don't like to step on each other's toes or, but I think honestly that if we're getting more on the treatment side of the tracks, that we are one of the most underregulated industries out there and where we allow for uh, people who don't, I, I don't know anywhere else in medicine or even behavioral health where someone without an advanced degree of at least a master's degree can provide clinical care. And there's reasons for that. You know, there, there's reasons, historical reasons for that in the addiction community. But I think that there's also a lot more latitude for uh, for, for this messaging, not permeating treatment environments, but also certainly getting out there into the public. I, I do think that there's more a need, more of a need for that sort of messaging. We're getting very close to Overdose Awareness Day, which I think has a very important role for the public in getting the information out there. But when I'll, I'll see on LinkedIn or in emails between industry folks saying, oh, here's what we're going to do to celebrate International Overdose Day. That's great for the public, but that doesn't help us do more as a field. Let's let's see what are we doing in the industry so that we can all get involved in it. That's just one of the things that I see. Um, like I said, I've been around a long time and, and I, I'm kind of that get off my lawn kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, it's like we need an overdose action day. I mean, I think that's yeah. really what you're driving at, that, that awareness is, is the first step, but then you actually have to do something <laughs> with that awareness. Well, what I will say, and I actually have a question for you. If, if, if sure. you know, I, I, have, I have an I This I, I was kicking around right now. So one of the things that I also beat a drum about a lot is stigma, and I think a lot of us here, you know, in in the industry and public health are doing that, and about how right now stigma literally is killing people because they're keeping addiction secret while it grows, so that they go down that pipeline until they reach that endpoint. I'm what I'm wondering about is what it's going to take for people to actually be comfortable talking about this rather than feeling like they have to hide it. If this is something where we have to talk about uh, the, the overlap, like the decriminalization, and are they do they feel like they're doing something where they get in trouble? Is it a moral failing? But what I have seen is this almost like a disconnect where there's actually a lot of public famous figures like um, celebrities and so forth who are very open about being in recovery, that they've had this struggle that they're feeling better. They're not trying to hide it. They're not ashamed. Yet, despite the fact that there's plenty of role models out there and plenty of messaging around that, I feel like that has not trickled down to the general public. And we still see people who are afraid to talk to their physicians about addiction or uh, or family members or anybody else. How do you how do you think that stigma is playing into all this? And how do you think we can get that messaging out in an effective way to change society, not just the people within our industry? My assumption on this is that we really need to get together on and not fight stigma in pockets. Several years ago, I was at the ATOD conference in Atlanta, and the president of ATOD got up and was talking about Governor Paula Page in Maine, who said had some really unhealthy, wild theories. And he said, I don't know if this guy's bipolar or something. And it struck a chord with me because in that crowd of hundreds of people are going to be individuals who struggle with bipolar disorder, and you can't fight stigma on one and and 
increase it uh, on the other. And I had some conversations with ATOD board members that I knew about that, and, and I was concerned. But we have to be, I think, one of the struggles is that, like you said, there are differences in individuals who may, how they may have developed their, their substance use disorder. We know that on the street, there's a difference between somebody in perspective of somebody who use, inhales you know, cocaine, snorts cocaine, or those who smoke crack or use it IV. There's a difference between using Oxycontin and using heroin that uh, is perpetrated. And I say, well, at least I don't do this. At least I don't do that. Uh, and I think we need to look at it and talk about things from public uh, public health perspective. You know, it, I get all the targeted ads in my email and things being in my mid-50s, you know, of things that I would really not want to talk to my doctor about, but I will, right? But how did we make talking about ED, you know, erectile dysfunction, okay? It became a public health issue it became, hey, this is what the stats look like. And I think those are the things we need to do. It's again, it's, we have to be unified. We That's can't a really silo what we do. I feel like the answer, at least for me, the answer to that question has to do with judgment and reprisal. I know that a lot of people, when like with physicians, like if they've had a physician for years and they haven't told them about it, they, they've told me as their therapist, like, I'm afraid to tell them this because I think they'll be upset at me or I think they'll be mad at me, which is, you know, again, from a medical point of view, that would never happen, right? They'll be thankful that you told them, you know, your, your physician is always on your side. But, but we also have to look at how physicians are asking the questions, right? You know, are you, a, uh, are you an alcohol user? What's your alcohol use like? Are you a drug user instead of, you don't use drugs, right? Because that ultimately, and I, it's very well-meaning, um, and I certainly can't, you know, paint with a broad brush to say all medical providers are doing that, but I'm sure it's happening in some. And when I hear that, right, I, I get uh, very keyed in on semantics. I don't want to say anything. You don't do that, do you? Because there is a, a, a judgment in there, even if it's not uh, intentional. That's true. Yeah, there, there's judgment and it's also a leading question. <laughs> and I think we as a field also, when we see there are individuals who are very open about their recovery and talk about their recovery process um, throughout the the country. There are many. And there are also those who have a recovery history who choose to just, they're open about it, but they don't talk about it. And I think that that's an okay thing too. I posted on LinkedIn the other day, Miguel Cabrera just hit his, uh, his 500th home run. That's an amazing feat. And his success has been after his uh, in his long-term recovery from alcohol. He was very clear and open about his issues that he went to treatment and sought help, but he doesn't talk about his recovery. There's pressure on individuals like that to talk about it when I think living in recovery is enough sometimes. It depends on the individual. There are those that, that are good and comfortable at talking about their process, and there's those who just don't want to, and we have to embrace those. Um, and and, and show that you don't have to fit as a certain stereotype to be in recovery, that you don't have to tell everyone. And there are people who like to tell their stories and there are people who don't. Right. Well, it's that all. line between being open and being an advocate. And I think, I mean, either one can be, can be helpful, but I agree. I don't think everyone needs to be like proselytizing the, you know, recovery communities or the process of being recovery. But at the same time, just the fact that like that, that we know, that he, he went through this problem and that he recovered and that's been part of his story and part of his strength was that he was open about it. 
like people might be about any other uh, physical health concern. And I think like, it really is about being open. And I think the, the point of our conversation without knowing it is, is we're talking about that unity and that joining forces and really bringing all we can to bear against the, you know, the overdoses. And it is a big picture and there need to be steps along the way. And there are roles for all parts of the industry. Mm-hmm. And I say industry instead of field, because to me, that professionalizes it. Um, and I, that's an important aspect as well. Um, before we finish up, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, well, so 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 one of my biggest areas of emphasis, and we've kind of already talked about this a little bit today, but is about doing. Because I think that a lot of times we consume a lot of knowledge, like you might be listening to this podcast and might find something interesting, but then it just gets filed away and maybe it comes back out sometimes, or maybe it was just a brief moment of education. But I think the most useful way to spend your time is in ways that inspire change in you or change in your that you can make to your environment. And be, like we were saying that there's different sides to this issue. I think that everyone, literally everyone can play a role and literally everyone can contribute, whether or not it's directly on some of the issues that I wrote about in the article in the opioid epidemic, or if there's something else that you're passionate about around substance use disorders. Because again, my view is that there's a big portion of the people dying from this, we'll call it more the younger cohort, who are moving up. Up through alcohol and nicotine and THC, making their way towards these uh, more illegal and harder hitting drugs, where actually changing changing some uh, norms around that, or like with alcohol, for example, we've lost about 90,000 people to alcohol in this country every year for the last decade. And no one even talks about that, which is sometimes astounding to me. We've just it's like it's like it doesn't even come across our radar. We just like accept it as the cost of doing business. Literally, but that's a big issue too. And if that's something that you're passionate about, maybe that's where you start. But I think that around the issue of addiction and preventing overdose, there's something that literally everyone can do. So if this is something that gets you riled up or gets you passionate, makes you want to do something positive for your community, reach out. There's just about anywhere in this country, there's either a public health department, a drug-free community group, somewhere where you can actually make a difference in this. And it really is going to take this this unified effort to make that difference and that 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 would be my final message (laughs) (laughs) well i appreciate that it is hopefully that this can be a call to action uh, for individuals Uh, that's going to do it for this episode of scope of practice i'd like to thank dr aaron weiner founder of the bridge forest group in lake forest illinois for taking time out of his schedule to join us I continue to be amazed at the individuals and information that we were able to speak to on this podcast, and we again extend our gratitude to Mountainside Treatment Center for their generous support. We here at the CCB appreciate everyone who's listening, and don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, Amazon, or your favorite podcast application. We'll catch you next time, everybody. Perfect. Thank you very much. That was great. All right. I'm glad. Thanks for fielding my question off the cuff there. I know I, no, I just I was curious. I know that I come that I'm that get off my lawn kind of guy because I've seen so many things and um and I get frustrated with the field, most of it around professionalism and things like that, with the master's degree stuff that you mentioned, which is something that Dr. Willenbring said in his kind of uh, wildness was saying regulations, we don't have good regulation. And I'm a firm believer that CARF and Joint Commission accrediting, although my sponsor loves it, means nothing. 
quality standards don't mean quality treatment. Mm-hmm. And Shatterproof is trying to do the same thing. And I, when I asked Gary, who's from Connecticut, well, what are you going to do when someone doesn't meet these quality standards? What are you going to do when if the outcomes don't match it? And he, he just pushed my question aside. And other employees have said, we don't have an outcome kind of thing. CARF doesn't look at outcomes. They look at your charting and your, your physical plan, all important things, but not enough. Right. Well, I mean, that, that's been another one of those really tricky subjects with like with with outcomes and measuring outcomes. And I mean, that's just a whole nother ball of wax in the addiction industry. And but mm, yeah, the, the financial incentives, I feel like, are completely reversed in a lot of behavioral health, but definitely in addiction where you make like with medication assisted treatment, where you make more money than more suboxone or you know methadone you dispense. Or the more someone comes back or someone re-enters treatment, you make more money off that individual (laughs) than if they never come back. (laughs) There are just so many weird things. You know, I was at a, a, we work with a lobbyist in D.C. He was a friend of mine. And he brought me to a meeting because we were doing some stuff. He was coming to this meeting with me uh, with Coalition for Healthcare Funding. And it was soon after Robin Williams had taken his own life. And the people in there said, your time, your MAT time in the sun is over. You can get, you can bet your money's going to go to depression things. Now it didn't, um, because but we like to do that. Well, let's like you said, there's no alcohol. Don't put money in alcohol. That's not a problem anymore. It's just, it's really what is the crisis du jour, and when we find a resolution. And I really think that we're pushing the uh, people are pushing the Sackler story to create some sort of thing that we solved it. Now they're culpable. And and they deserve to get every penny taken from them. Yeah. But for the average person who needs to know what are we doing to stop people from dying, that doesn't do anything. That 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 leads to a false belief of a solution. Yeah. Well, and I this was beyond the scope of our our uh, our talk today. But I mean, I so one of the things that I find very interesting was like uh, five years ago when I first took the job at this hospital that really was what catapulted my awareness into more of the public health arena um, than just the individual arena. I was thinking to myself, man, this is this is the time to make a difference in addiction because the news is actually on, on us because of opioids, because of marijuana legalization. And I was thinking like this would be a window of some sort. And again, you've been in this field much longer than I have, but it's not getting any better. It's literally like every like between like the rise of vaping and what's still going on with marijuana. I don't know if you saw this recently, but they've just synthesized THCO. Have you seen? No, I haven't seen. Oh, this this was just published on recently, but this is literally the crack cocaine of THC, and it's been derived from hemp. It's supposed to be three times stronger than Delta Nine, and it comes from hemp, so it's not even being regulated right now at all. And that's just in the last month or two, I heard about that from, you know, the different derivatives of fentanyl to ISO. I mean, there's just, it seems like it's just always, there's another crisis in this area. And it's, it's definitely something that's not going away, but ultimately I think also is going to require going way upstream to the demand side, as opposed to just the supply side and actually teaching our young people to cope. And making it so people don't experience as many adverse childhood events with social service. I mean, it's all one big system, unfortunately. Yeah, one of my good friends, actually, David Mineta, who was a deputy director for demand reduction at ONDCP for a number of years. We came to, when I met first met him, he came to visit Connecticut. And um, 
We took him to a bunch of different places. And one of the places he wanted to see was the Yale Child Study Center. And he talked about ACEs and what they were doing in the community. And it wasn't an uh, addiction-focused program at all. But he was saying, this is how we reduce demand in the long run. We focus on these ACEs and we try to reduce them in these children. And if you know New Haven, Connecticut may be a small city. Um, Yale is in the hood. Um, not a pleasant area to be around. Um, I mean, you hear some of like some of the stories of what goes on for some of these people. And it's like, how could you not have been using drugs? You had no positive role models. You had no way to cope with your feelings. You were being traumatized all the time. I mean, you want peace. You want acceptance. You want a community. And that's gangs and drugs and alcohol and all. I mean, like, what else are you supposed to do in a way? So, like, I was a project kid. I grew up in the projects um, in a small city. All I wanted, and today I, I can say all I wanted was to be accepted. Um, back then, I would say I didn't do anything for peer pressure. I did it because I wanted to. But I sit back and I say, oh, yeah. And now I can have those conversations with my son. I go, remember that dumb stuff you used to do? He goes, oh, yeah, I so wanted to be hang out with those guys. I mean, yeah, it's stupid what we do. Um, it, it, we just, it has to be a big picture conversation. And we can't silo things. I'm lucky yeah. because my primary care doctor is an addictionologist. So we'll talk about this, you know, all the time. Uh, and it's, it's, she's like, you're paying me for discussion. I know my insurance is paying you for discussion. And it's really, uh, but it fascinates me how we have to look at that. Um, and when we hear something that we disagree with, we can't automatically reject it. Mm-hmm. But there are bad messages in Carl Hart's latest book. I know Carl, he's a nut. Um, and I know that he likes to be provocative. So when I read his book about how to use drugs, and I, I was saying, I can see where he's he, he's just kind of playing the role here uh, because he has that. But I, I, I said, I can't help but say to him, I think it's dangerous. Um, but I can't reject everything he says because there's important points in there. Yeah, no, I, I don't know if you've read his book, but he's wild. He, he's a funny, funny, funny guy. Um, but oh, he has well, different right. beliefs than I do. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, I, I agree with you. This actually reminds me, I, I mean, I've seen some of Carl's interviews when he came out and was talking about that. And it's like, man, for like, if we, if we go with the supposition that you're using heroin and you have that under control, there might be one of you, but there's nine people, in my opinion, who are going to try that out and find a very different outcome. And that creates issues. The same thing, I had the same opinion on uh, California sober. That is a term, which yeah. is like, you know, like, if you are using substances to cope, <laughs> the data we have says that that's going to lead you back to wherever you started much more often than just like being stable on pot. And to be honest with you, alcohol isn't a very good drug either. <laughs> that, that causes yeah. a lot of problems. Um, so anyway, yeah, there, there's sometimes yeah. there's just ideas that although it's not that the entire part should be rejected or that there isn't some aspect that's useful, it's like, man, it could cause, it could cause a lot of pain if you broaden it out too much. Yeah, Carl did a, we were in Salt Lake City and Carl did a morning, he was the keynote in the morning. Um, so he fired people up and then we had lunch and then I was the plenary uh, to start the afternoon. And he's just chuckling because they were so angry because of the things he said, even though it was an hour and a half later, I go back to the table. And he's like, that was fun. Huh? I go, you idiot. And then we went out to dinner and we saw Redford, Robert Redford. We went to Sundance and Redford was actually in the bar that he owns. It was kind of weird to see. That's so cool. 
what an experience. Yeah, oh. so hey, I appreciate it. I, I hope we can stay in touch. Um, I think the things you bring up are, are fascinating. Well, yeah, thanks so much for, for reaching out. It was a pleasure getting to know you. I mean, it sounds like we have a very similar beliefs and you're clearly very active and passionate about this stuff too. So I have a feeling that our, our, our stars will cross again at some point. Yeah, I had to tone it down a bit because when we started calling it an opioid crisis, I said, well, my older brother died in 1990 from an opioid overdose. Um, was he was he just some dirty junkie? And now today people are victims. I had to tone that stance down. I got mad. Uh, uh, I got a little bit out of, but then his daughter passed away three years ago in a hotel with an overdose. I'm so sorry. Oh, awful. And it's, and he only knew her for about a year before he passed. Um, but the genetic, like Maya Salovich has a great book about looking at uh, addiction as a learning disorder. And I buy so much of what she says, but I really think she's missing the boat on one thing. She says there's no genetic component. And I really think that the changes in the brain get can get passed on and, and things. So, Oh, yeah. Well, and that's, I guess, one final thought. I think that's always the, the issue I have with a lot of mass market publications about addiction is I feel like a lot of them take one angle and like go all in on it. Like, when I as a, an addiction professional, and I, I trust you've probably also read Johan Hari's Chasing the Scream, mm -hmm. and I was reading that and was like, you make some good points, but you are completely discounting that there is absolutely a biological and chemical side of this that's been shown through a lot of research. And I feel like that, that sort of issue where like someone's got one viewpoint, and so there's some uh, intentional omissions or you know, de, -emphasi de emphasizing of things so that we don't really see it in its full complexity. I feel like that that's another endemic issue in how we talk about this. Yeah. And I think when we, we all have our own agenda. I get that. We may, may or may not be aware of it. I know that um, like uh, John Kelly at Harvard, brilliant researcher, absolutely one of the smartest and nicest people I know. But I still say to him, I think you stick up for the 12 steps where they're, where they're lacking. I think your bias is too pro 12 step um, because he, he's, constantly uh defending it from attacks mm -hmm. and I, I you know it, you know but yeah you're crazy but but it's you know i it's just but i listen to them you know i don't i don't know what i believe because it's constantly changing um you know science isn't the truth science is the search for the truth and the more information we get my opinion has to change based on new information so question for you about that. So I, I also know John, he's very involved in, in my division. And then also the we're, we're creating a new uh, addiction psychology board certification in psychology. So yeah, he, he was a former president, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. At some point he, he did that cycle too. But he maybe it was like a year or two ago now, he and his lab came out with that Cochrane review of 12-step groups and concluded that like, yes, they're effective. Like when, when you look at that, are you feeling like you, you don't necessarily buy it or are you? No, I love the Cochrane review. First of all, everyone knows how, how uh, the, you know, how important the Cochrane reviews are and how strong their, their science is. Yeah. But my, so I was in, this all makes perfect sense to me, but the struggle was that people were pushing it, saying it said more than it did. The mm. field was doing that. You know, the fact that, it, there's evidence to say it works as good uh, or as well or better for some people. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that, that 
That's perfect. Certainly it works better than long-term psychotherapy because we've got to deal with the acute first before we can start getting into any therapy. But what people were posting are things like it shows it's the best and people will read those posts without reading the article. Murphy Jensen, I love Murphy, the tennis player, who's a big outspoken, uh, he's a recovery guy. He likes to tell the story, he's good at it. But he was posting saying, this is the best, this is the best, this is the best. Nowhere in the Cochrane review did it say it was the best. Yeah. Well, and I would be surprised if it did, because that would be an overreach. Yeah, I, it, it said exactly it's it, it, what we knew. It provided science to what we knew. It's as good or better for some people. Not as good for some people, you know. Uh, but we don't have enough people, I think, in the research world, like the Kathy Carrolls of the world, you know, God rest her, who was a um, you know big proponent of CBT. But when her and and the folks up in Boston did the study on CBT and buprenorphine, the results were mixed. She didn't hide from it. She put it out there and says, "I have to rethink this." Right. Um, and there was it didn't say it didn't work. It just said it it doesn't work for everybody, and there's no way to tell who it's going to work for. But brilliant. I mean, that's a brilliant research article because it's true. And but she had to back off her stuff and had no hesitation in doing it. I am really enjoying this conversation. I really appreciate it. Like we we have so many similar perspectives. Like the way the uh, the, the way that the media handles research, as if like a new study finds something, even if it's portrayed accurately, it's like you do re- you do realize that anything of value has to be replicated, right? And that if you sure. trump it from the rooftops. That doesn't make it like you flip a coin three times, like my, my Cubs hat, you know, like it wasn't actually a lucky Cubs hat. I just didn't have a large enough sample size. Well, you know, when you look at the tiers and things of, of, of how we treat folks and, you know, just because something is an evidence-based practice doesn't mean it's going to work in your environment because it hasn't been tested in your environment. But the government says, you know, SAMHSA, we're going to pay for you to do this. Because we say this is an evidence-based practice, but if it's not the right, you know, not every study is the original DBT study that Marsha Linehan did, you know, what she did with a very small group of a very homogeneous set of women from a certain area. And the fact that when you expanded that, it worked for so many different populations was a shot in the dark. It just happened to work. Um, but not every study is like that, you know. Um, and I have a special place for DBT because when I was a social work intern, they said, let's give the intern all the borderline folks because it's a significant learning experience. Oh, man. So when I started working um, in substance use, and uh, I was dealing with some of the behaviors of personality disorders. I go, these are minor league behaviors. This is nothing. <laughs> you can't even get mad at these people. If you were doing like a specialized DBT for, uh, program for borderline person, that's like running with weights right there. Like you will definitely learn how to set the best boundaries in the world. <laughs> oh, I think that when I was doing it behind in front of the glass, I think my supervisor and my coworkers, because I worked there as a clinic, I was an intake person when they were, they let me do my internship there. I'm sure they were standing behind the mirror cracking up, but it was a significant learning and I had tremendous support from my coworkers, not just my supervisor. But, oh, my God, it, you know, that's it teaches you valuable lessons about the field and about yourself. You work with, with folks with with real good cluster B personality disorders. You're going to learn about yourself. <laughs> oh, 
<sighs> All right. You know, I've actually spoken in Illinois a bunch of time for IABH. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When uh, I don't know if you were affiliated with them when you were at the hospital. Um, I was a regular with with them for a few years, um, going out and speaking out in Schaumburg and uh, oh, the yeah. other places. Oh, well, so maybe look, I, I've kept you long enough. Um, I had a great time, though, and I appreciate it uh, and your insight. Oh, Hopefully like my sons out there will give your Cubs some good luck. <laughs> next year, not this year. Save the okay. luck for next year. This well, I'm year. a Red Sox fan, and I, I won't even watch them this year because – but the Mookie bets and they traded for Alex Verdugo, who was involved in the rape of a young woman. And I just can't. He and his minor league teammates were involved in the beating and rape of a young woman while they were in the minor leagues. And he says, well, I didn't do anything. Well, he was there and did nothing to stop it. And to me, that's culpable. Yeah, that's pretty. Uh, and I can't. You know, that's not just a kid mistake. I can't. It's, yeah. So I'm bound on the Red Sox. I'm done with the Red Sox. All 40 right. years of being a fan, 45 years, I'm done. Until <laughs> <laughs> he goes. Hey, have a great day, Dr. Weiner. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Likewise. <laughs> Bye.